0: So before we get into it, we're going to do three chapters uh, tonight. They're a little bit shorter chapters, and I, I wanted to kind of stick with the narrative. And remember, we talked about Esther's very narrative-driven book. It kind of just flows like a story. Um, so uh, even more than some of the history books sometimes, it's, it's very. I've heard it called almost like a, a short story or a novella in the way that it's written. Not that it's saying that it's fiction, but meaning like that's the structure of how it's set up in the Bible. So since it's so narrative-focused, I wanted to just kind of stick with the little beats of the story. And I want us to remember what's happened because it's been a minute since we've been in Esther. So I just want us to remember what's happened in the story so far, right? So Esther is a Jewish girl who is not known that that's her background or her lineage. And she got sucked into some of this intrigue in the Persian court. Why are the Jews in Persia? Well, they're under exile. And so they're stuck here living in a place where they don't want to be living in a strange world. And it's a place that we were kind of seeing in the first couple chapters of Esther is kind of scary. There's a lot of dangerous stuff for them them going on and you've got these Persian kings who if you study history at all under the Persian Empire these were incredibly like these very brutal despotic rulers they could do whatever they wanted and they the way that they ruled was really um just kind of at their whim, they could, they could do all these violent, horrible things. We even learned and we kind of saw in the first couple of chapters, you keep seeing this recurring theme of the king seems like he has a drinking party and then he makes a bunch of important decisions. And that's not a coincidence that that's in scripture. That's actually scripture recording what we know historically about the Persian kings is that that's how they believed they were supposed to make decisions of state. So they would intentionally get the king drunk and then he would make all these legal decisions and they would write those down because they thought that that was somehow more spiritual. Not a fantastic uh, regime to be under, right? Uh, but you see that happen even in the book of Esther where the king will make these terrible decisions and it's like he wakes up the next morning saying, wait, what did I say? And they said, oh, it's okay, we wrote it down. You said this. And then he's got to live with the decisions he made. So it is a crazy place for God's people to be. And Esther specifically, now she's part of the king's harem. She's one of the king's wives which is not like a nice romantic thing. She's kind of stuck in this kind of palace compound. She's been totally forgotten. She hasn't. Uh, the king hasn't asked about her or mentioned her in a while, we heard uh, in the last couple chapters. She can't go and just kind of show up and, and remind the king that she exists because if she shows up uninvited, she could be executed for that. The king is kind of chooses who shows up and, and has a court audience. And her cousin Mordecai, meanwhile, he's kind of somewhere around the palace. He's got jobs, he's got duties, and he intervened to protect the king from an assassination plot. And this is another, there's a lot of historical details in the book of Esther that... It's, this is true throughout the Bible, but every once in a while you find one of these books of the Bible that really throws in all these details that really make it difficult for all these scholars who want to say, oh, that wasn't, that. that's probably just a story that somebody wrote down. These details are really important. All these assassination plots we know historically were an integral part of what happened in the Persian court. Everybody was always looking out to see how can, if I can, you know, take the king out, maybe then I can position myself or somebody that I know. And so this was a thing that happened for Persian kings a lot. Well, Mordecai, we read here in Esther, heard that one of these schemes was going to go on from some of the internal court guys were, were, were kind of setting up one of these plots. And he tells the king about it and, and you know, gets this taken care of. Those guys get executed. But that doesn't go noticed. Mordecai doesn't get any reward for that. And he still kind of can't even get into the palace to see Esther anymore. And he's kind of floating around trying to see what's going to happen, right? And now we've got Mordecai's blood rival, Haman, right? And we talked about in the last couple, and we're going to see it again happen here, Haman and Mordecai are set up in the story of Esther as these two kind of, this irresistible force and the immovable object are going to meet, right? Why? Well, because Mordecai is a Jew, and he's not just any Jew, but he's from Saul's lineage, and, and Haman is from a, a, the, the, the lineage of Amalek, which are the people that, you know, basically <laughs> Saul messed up, didn't take care of, and now they're coming back to, to get the children of Israel again. It's this constant rivalry that you see in Scripture. And because of this, you know, the, the Agagites is what you see from, uh, is, is where Haman descends from. Agag was that king, remember, that Saul, Saul was supposed to kill and he didn't. So Samuel, I think it was Samuel, there was a prophet at the time, took care of it for him. And so, because of all this, now we see that there's this problem that's going on. Mordecai's got this enemy, and Haman knows, realizes that Mordecai won't bow to him, won't give him honor, and he's upset by it. But at this point in the story, God's enemies have all the upper hand right now. Haman is inside the king's court, he's got the king's ear, he's kind of the king's number two guy, it seems like, or he's influential anyway, he's powerful. He's got the king's signet ring, right? The king has let him go out and sign this death warrant for all the Jews that he's kind of lied his way into and said, look, there's these bad people. I should take them all out. And the king said, sure, whatever. And so now he's got this signed proclamation that's gone out. And that includes Esther and Mordecai. The king doesn't know that, but Esther's included in that because she's secretly also a Jew. So don't panic, but the stakes here are the eradication of God's people and the failure of the promised Messiah, right? If God's people get taken out here at this point in the book, then guess what? None of the rest of the book happens, right? Now, of course, we know that's not what's going to happen. But at the time, that's a real thing. You know, you're part of the children of Israel, and you're like, Lord, we're supposed to, the Messiah is supposed to come from us. If we get all taken out now, what's going to happen, right? So the stakes are really big right now. But of course, that's when the Lord always likes to show up, right? And that's what we're going to read. This week is we're going to read through 5, 6, and 7 in Esther. And this is kind of the big turning point in the story. So far, everything has been getting worse and worse. It's like, you know, the, this, I remember from English class, right? You've got this rising action in the story, right? And everything is getting worse and worse. And and, and the, the conflict in the story is building till this turning point where all of a sudden you see what's, how everything's going to resolve and it all kind of goes to its conclusion. This part of the, the book of Esther is that kind of turning point here. And we're going to see Haman, he's going to get his... The best it's going to get for him, and then it's going to quickly get uh, very bad for him here in these chapters. So let's start in Esther chapter 5, and I'll read uh, verses 1 through 8, for starters. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther, what is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So, Esther remember right at the close of the story Mordecai had been telling Esther look you're going to like you're in this place in the court you can go talk to the king is it what you're supposed to do no is it super risky yes but you can do it and we can't so you the lord has put you there you need to take advantage of that opportunity the lord's given you and take that chance to help save your people and Mordecai's kind of telling her look this is probably why the lord has got you there and she's worried about that, but she decides, I'm going to take that step. And there's this time of fasting and prayer. Now she's made that decision. She goes into the king's court uninvited. And the king extends his favor to her. God gives her an opportunity to speak. And I love, this is a quote from a comment old commentator called Matthew Henry. He says, God can turn the hearts of men, of great men, of those that act most arbitrarily, which way he pleases towards us. God in his providence often prevents the fears and outdoes the hopes of his people, especially when they venture in his cause. I love that, when they venture in his cause, right? So she's going way outside of her comfort zone. She's doing something that is genuinely dangerous to her. And I think sometimes that's when God likes to show up. When we're foolhardy and when we're silly and when we do things we know we shouldn't. No, I don't think so. But when we take a big step of faith saying, "Lord, I know this is what I'm supposed to do and you're going to have to show up here because I don't there's no way I can work this out." That's when I think God genuinely does love to show up. She takes this active step, right? She goes into the court uninvited, but she wasn't acting in the flesh here. She had to wait on God for All of this, right? And she had waited until the moment where she knew this was what she was supposed to do. She had not taken, it wasn't like the first time she heard about this proclamation. She says, you know what I'm gonna do? And she just runs into the court. She waited, she prayed, she fasted, she got good counsel from Mordecai. But then when she realizes this is what God's calling her to do, she does take this action, right? Waiting on the Lord, it's not always this passive thing, right? We say, I'm waiting on the Lord. It's kind of a, a thing that we say in, in the church. And that's, there's nothing to the matter with saying it that way. That's how the Bible puts it. But you've got to remember, that's not necessarily just I'm sitting and doing nothing. What it means is I'm waiting to hear what the Lord is telling me to do. And then once you hear that, then we take that action, right? We take that step of faith and we wait and see what the Lord is going to do from that point. And that's what she did. Throughout the book of Esther, we see that God's hand of providence, right? And this is like what we've read already in, in the book of Romans. We were just studying this, right? God, Tyler was talking about how God uses the actions that we take to work out his plan that he has, right? He can do both of those things. He can have us take these steps and actions he's asking us to take to respond to him in obedience. And then he uses those to accomplish his will, his perfect will. Both of those things can happen. And... God is doing that. He's working out these things, even when he isn't directly visible or we can't even understand what's going on. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Esther. We mentioned maybe towards the beginning that you're not going to see God's name in the book of Esther, which makes it kind of unique in the Bible. And sometimes people have even said, yeah, I don't, there were some people that in in a long time ago used to say, yeah, maybe Esther shouldn't be in the Bible because God's name isn't even in there. But here's the thing, can't you see what God's doing all through the book of Esther? Of course you can, right? And so a lot of times it's like that in our lives, right? There are things where you, you only notice that God was doing something when you look back and you see, oh, God did something, or oh, God kept me from doing something, right? Or God protected me there. You don't maybe even know that in the moment. And that's the same way. God is constantly directing and guiding the lives of Esther and Mordecai and his chosen people, and he's doing the same thing for you. Exodus 33:17. 17 says and the Lord said to Moses this very thing that I have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name it's the same kind of thing as what the king gives to Esther this idea of favor it's the king looking at you and saying I like you I'm going to give you the thing that you're asking for I could say no if I wanted to, but I'm going to say yes because I want to, right? And that's what God is giving us, right? God gives us his favor because we're his kids. That means that when we do the things that God asks us to do, he's there protecting us and taking care of us and helping that thing that we're reaching out our hand to in faith saying, I think this is what God wants me to do. And God is bringing that to, to fruition. He's taking care of that for us. Because God's decided to place his favor on you through his grace, you're walking around the world in a sense kind of with his signet ring, you know, kind of like what Haman had. Haman, the king says, go out and do it. Here's my ring. You go, whatever you say, whatever you put this ring on, that's going to be what I say. And God does that for us in a sense, right? The Bible talks about how we have an inheritance with Jesus, and there's all these blessings that we have in that. Now, you can get excited about that, and you can start using that because you desire things in the flesh and, and say, oh, that's right. I, You know, I'm walking around with Jesus' favor, and that means I can do this and that. okay. This isn't about being rich or famous or just having, like James says, have all these things to spend them on our pleasures. It's so much more important and holy than that. God has set you apart, right? And he's promised providentially to ensure that you're going to be able to carry out his will for you. And that means lots of different things. That means sometimes he's protecting you from bad things that could happen to you. Sometimes he's allowing certain horrible, hard things into your life because he knows his will for you and he's taking care of you and he preserves you through those things. Sometimes it means that he's got good works, the Bible says, that he's laid out for you to do. And he makes sure that he protects you and lets you have those opportunities. And then he gives you the strength to do the thing that he's asked you to do. And then he brings victory out of that. He does all those things for you. We're going to see how all of these little coincidences, right? There's no coincidences with the Lord, but we feel like that sometimes. We say, huh, that's funny how that just happened. And then we keep going on, right? But God doesn't see things that way. That's not how God works. And all these little coincidences and chaotic kind of insane stuff is going to be happening around Esther and Mordecai. And it's like those little things are the medium that God is using to create this masterpiece that he wants to make out of his people, right? We just look at it and we're like, ah, it's just a mess, you know? Have you ever gone into maybe... You know somebody who's an artist, or they do kind of some sort of craft work, right? Like my grandpa, he worked with wood. He's a woodworker, and he had a wood shop and had a business for a long time. And you would go into his shop, and if you're if you go to his shop in the middle of something, it's a mess. There's stuff over here, and there's 17 tools out, and this is this is broken because he tried it once, and now he's doing it a different way. And if you didn't know, you didn't understand what he was doing. You just go in there and you say that doesn't look right. He's just making a mess, right? But if you watch the end of the process. He cleans everything up and puts everything away, and he's just got a thing that he's made. You're like, oh, that's really cool. Look at that, right? But you can't get there without all this other stuff happening. And a lot of times that's what God is doing in your life. All this stuff that feels so chaotic to you and so stressful, and you're like, I don't know, Lord. I just, I can't, I can't control these things, and I'm, I'm totally past the point where I can manage it all. That's the stuff that God's using to make the thing that he wants to make right? Because God can control it all. God's not stressed out about your life. God's not sitting up there saying, there's just too many moving parts (laughs) that I've got going here and I don't know what I'm going to do. That's not how God feels, right? That's how you feel. But we've got to learn sometimes to give that feeling to the Lord and say, look, I'm going to allow myself to experience the Lord's peace in the middle of this stuff. I'm not going to wait for this stuff to be done, right? I don't know about you guys, but I've experienced in my adult life that there really isn't a time where all the stuff stops, (laughs) right? You you can keep waiting for that if you want, but there really isn't a point at which you're like, there, now everything's fixed, and it's all perfect, and I can just enjoy peace. No, you got to kind of grab onto that in the middle of all that stuff and enjoy it anyway, because that's what the Lord has said He wants to give you, is peace in the middle of all that stuff, right? Not as the world gives. So we're going to see that that's what starts to happen through Esther and Mordecai's life. She's in the middle of some scary stuff right now, but the Lord's starting to create this little place, this almost like this protective little shield around them, no matter what's going on, and the Lord starts doing stuff in there. So... She uses this chance. She asks for the meeting. Now she's going to, at this banquet now, she's going to open up this subject, right? And she's, look how she's being super careful about how she kind of maneuvers this in, right? She doesn't just walk into the king's audience and say, you know what, um, your best advisor, your guy that you really trust, he's bad, and you should listen to me instead. That's a, that might not be a good move. So she's being wise in the way that she does this, right? What does she know? She knows the king and Haman love banquets, right? They loved to party, they loved to get out there and just sit and and this is what they would do, right? They'd have these banquets, these feasts, they'd drink wine and all of this stuff would go on and that was how they kind of did their business in the Persian court. So she says, look, these guys love to just hang out, do nothing, talk, drink. Well, if I set up this kind of party and they come and they hang out and they relax and they're talking and they're laughing and they're just relaxed, maybe that's when I can kind of open up this really difficult topic, and the king will be in a good mood. He's not going to be just sitting on his throne, having a hard day, dealing with all these issues. He's going to be at this kind of relaxed setting, so she thinks about that. Now, this is setting up, and we've already seen this in Esther, but there's so many funny, like, reversals and and just really humorous stuff in the book of Esther, and one of the things that you see in the book of Esther is there's all these, like, um, contrasts that they get set up. So there's this reversal that's going to happen where Haman is going to go from drinking with the king. He's happy. In the previous chapters, right, he's been, everything's been coming up, Haman. He's been doing great. And there's this huge reversal where he's going to go to being really sad and then even worse. And then Esther and the Jews, right, they go, last chapter, they were fasting and they were praying and they were really worried. And by the end, in fact, in the next time that we go to Esther, they're going to be the ones celebrating, having a fantastic time, while Haman and his his team are not doing so well, right? So there's this big switch that happens, and there's you're gonna if you look carefully, you're gonna see kind of almost th- this humor and this satire that's in the Bible as well, where God is showing, look, this is what I do, right? My my people win, and my enemies get embarrassed. That's how I like to do things, right? And it's kind of you'll see some funny elements of that as we read. So she's gone. She's gotten this advice. And now she kind of is finessing a little bit, right? She's like, look, I'm not just going to pop this question right now. I'm going to wait until the king is in a place where I think that the Lord is is opening up this door. And then I'm going to take that opportunity. She and Mordecai have faithfully refused to use sinful methods, right? Remember, they're in the middle of this just absolute like dog pit. In the persian court like just everyone is out there doing everything they can to be on top and they're being violent and just playing dirty and scheming to to take each other out and there's got to be huge temptation right for them to say all right listen like it's the law of the jungle out here you know we got to take care of ourselves it's every man for himself like look this is just what we got to do but they didn't choose to do that they didn't use the world's methods But she is going to be wise as a serpent. She's going to make sure that she gets the king in a good mood. She's going to take every opportunity that she has, right? She's not being foolish, but she's also not choosing to to take up the arm of the flesh and do things in the way that everyone else is doing them around her. So she brings them to this first banquet, right? And what's kind of funny is, so she has this banquet, everything is, and as you're reading, you're like, okay, this is where she's going to do it, right? And then she said, and the king kind of is like, all right, so we've had this banquet, and you know, you, you get the sense that he's kind of, he's had a little bit too much to drink, and he's kind of like, up to half my kingdom, whatever you want, right? But that's kind of the way that the Persian kings would talk. It's this very grand gestures that they would make about, look, I'm so powerful that I could give away half my kingdom to you, and I've got A kingdom like that's that's how big I am so here you do whatever you want that's how powerful I am so he makes this big statement right and Esther takes that statement she goes um I'd like to do another party can we do another party round two and then we'll talk right now this could be for a few reasons maybe she like kind of froze up and maybe she just said um I don't know like let's talk about that tomorrow but I'm also thinking that it's possible that she knew that she needed the king to be totally on her side maybe she knew she needed the king to be a little bit curious right She's gonna drag this out a little bit and get him a little bit interested and and, and make sure that he's kind of because remember she hasn't even seen or talked to him for a month so she's like let's make sure that he remembers who I am what my name is and uh, what my what my problems are and all this stuff and then we're gonna then we're gonna talk to him I'm not gonna rush this she's waiting she's biding her time and e- either way what we're gonna see is the Lord is in total control of this operation down to the actual moment he's gonna use this delay to accomplish stuff that evening that needed to happen so that this all comes together the way that the Lord wanted to accomplish it. If she had rushed it, and you know, I I get the sense that she was listening to the Holy Spirit, and she was sensing, we're not going to go right now, we're going to wait. And then the Lord uses that delay. So, none of this is a wasted time. God knows what he's doing, right? God had other elements that hadn't come into place yet, and so the suspense is going to continue for just a little longer. So, starting in verse 9 through verse 14, Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to him the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Nice people. So Haman leaves the king's court, right? He's happy, he's probably a little bit drunk, (laughs) and his mood is immediately ruined because Mordecai won't bow down to him. Oh, this thing again. I keep telling this guy, I am the second guy in the kingdom. The king said that you got to do this for me and you won't do it. What is the matter with this guy, right? And he's just getting angry at him and he knows that he's a Jew, right? So there's already this thing of like, this is this guy. You guys did this to my, you know, my ancestors, and now you're, you're going to sit there and not bow down to me. Like, I'm the one in charge now, right? Like, I'm on top. Now we're, we have you in captivity. You're going to bow to me or else. And it's crazy that, right, like he has everything that he could possibly want, and he still can't be happy because of this one thing. But, hey, it's not just about this, you know, it's, it's like some of these situations, right? There's a feud going on. It's not about this one thing that he did. It's about everything. You know, they've got this memory of what's going on, and there's this generational rumble happening. And not only that, but God had a, uh, had a part that he had chosen in this side, right? God had said, look, this is, this is what their descendants did, the Agagites, the Amalekites. This is what they did, and I, I have not forgiven them for that, God says, and that sounds a little crazy, but that's what God says. Deuteronomy 25:17 through 19 says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So God took this stuff really seriously, right? These people had fallen on the kind of the baggage train of the people and attacked, not their fighting people, but their women and children. And God said, we're not going to allow that to happen. When you get to the land and you take the kingdom, you're going to get rid of them. Now, Israel didn't do that, and it's coming back to bite them, right? But God has said, look, I'm going to finish this. I'm not going to allow that to go unpunished. Now, this is, right? Did you know, right, that the Bible says God fights wars with his enemies, God chooses the people that he says, nope, we're going to resist that, we're going to fight that, and then God carries that out. And that may sound weird to us because we've got this idea of how these things have to go, and it's influenced by our own culture. It's not perfect. Right? Our idea of love and justice and all these things come from our where we live. That's not necessarily God's idea, and when we come to the Word, we need to submit to what God says. And we have to understand that God's perfect love for his children means that he's perfectly angry against those who would harm his children, right? If you were, you know, if you, have, you got a family, you have people in your house that you're supposed to protect, and if somebody threatened them and you said, well, I just love that person who's threatening my kids so much that I can't hurt them, I would question some things about you, you know? Now, I'm not saying that that means that you, right? Where there's nothing godly or right about this attitude that some people have where it's like, oh, I hope something happens so I can just unleash all of my power. That's not right. That's not how God calls you to be, Right? But protecting and defending and doing what's right is not the same thing as hoping that you get to unleash your anger and your rage on people. That's not right. But that's not what God does. God's not sitting up there in heaven, right? Like, you know, like Zeus from the Greek myths, just like with a lightning bolt, just ready. Oh, I hope that I can just toast him today. That's not God's wrath. That's not how God works. He's not impatient. The Bible says he's slow to anger. But at the point when he decides in his perfect justice that now is the time to be angry, you had best better not be the person that was continuing to attack and hurt God's people. And here's the thing. We're not wise enough to know who deserves what, yes. right? We're thinking, oh, I know who. It's these people, Lord. You got to get them because I don't like them, right? Whatever. But that's, God hasn't given us that job. That's why God says, look, don't you be out there getting vengeance. That's my, th- I get vengeance. I'm going to repay, right? But we get to do what the psalmist does. We pray for God's vindication and victory for us. And then we let God sort it out. There are some times where I've prayed for God's victory and God says, you are not in the right, so I'm not going to give you victory, <laughs> right? I'm not going to, you'll get that person like you're asking me to because you're wrong and they're, they're okay. And God protects me from what I want, which is to go get this thing that I think I deserve. There's other times where I say, Lord, like I can't do anything, but I'm getting taken advantage of or look at my, what's happened to my family. And God says, yeah, I know I'll take care of it and then God goes and vindicates you, right? God takes care of it. And isn't it better when that vindication comes by God's hand and not your hand, right? You've ever finished it in one of those fights yourself, and afterwards you're like, oh, I did the wrong thing. <laughs> that might have been the right thing, but I did it in the wrong way, and now I have to pay for it. And that happens, right? When we take these things in our hands. But look, look at the contrast that you're going to see between Haman. Haman's out there and all he wants is to get his and he's going to do whatever it takes to get it. He's going to use every advantage he has. He's going to twist every, he's going to say every lie, take every, you know, whatever it takes. He's going to get what he wants. And Esther and Mordecai are going to do what God's asked them to do. And they're only going to take the steps that God is telling them to take. And look who gets vindicated, right? Haman's out there doing the max and he gets nothing for it. And God vindicates his people, even though from the outside, worldly people would look at it and say, what are you doing? You're not, like, you need to fight harder. You need to, you need to finish this guy. Like, you can't let him live because he's threatening you. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. Haman's rage and his greed, it's going to be his undoing. He also seems to be super insecure, which I think is kind of funny, right? This one, he, he's just gone to this huge banquet. He's the king's guy. The queen is inviting him to this stuff, right? Like, he's getting all the stuff that he wants. And he gets one thing that doesn't go his way. And he goes home and he pouts and he, come, he b- brings all of his friends and says, listen, you just need to understand I'm super important and I'm really awesome. And, and like he, it's like he literally lines up all of his like little accomplishments in his trophy case just so his friends can be like, oh yeah, you're great, right? That's how hurt his, his little pride was. It's so funny. Not a great combination, right? That you've got all this greed and you're also insecure. But the Lord is going to show who, whose side he's on. Psalm 31, 23 says, Love the Lord, all you his saints, the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. So, Haman comes back, he's pouting, he's like, what am I going to do about this? And his wife, who sounds like a real case, says, well, you know what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And she gives him this advice, right? She says, why don't you make a gallows? Uh, and, and we think gallows like a... a, a like a scaffold, right, where you'd hang someone on the neck. That's not, I think we might have even talked about this the last time, that's not how the Persians roll. They didn't have hanging that way. But, so it's translated gallows, but maybe a better translation would be like a stake, because the per, one of the punishments the Persians would use was impalement, right? So they would just stick you up on this thing, and you would eventually die. It was horrible. The Persians were awful, awful people. Um, it's believed, it's, it's debated, we're not really sure, but it's possible that the Persians invented the punishment of crucifixion. How horrible do you have to be that you're sitting around and you're coming up with stuff like that, right? These are terrible people, and so impalement was one of their punishments, one of the things that they would do. Um, and so she says, "Look, why don't you make a stake that's so big that everybody's going to see him die, and then you're going to get like you're going to get your revenge. Everybody's going to see how how powerful and and you know how how much you're able to get what you want. That when he dies, everybody's going to know. And so she he sets up this terrible like revenge that he wants on Mordecai. Um, now, at this point, right, you're reading this story and you're getting to see kind of both sides. That's the kind of cool part of the book is you're seeing everything that's happening and you're like, oh, no, Mordecai, like, what are you going to do? But Mordecai doesn't know this is happening. Right. Mordecai's just like, oh, I didn't bow to him. He seemed like he was angry. He's always like that. And he, he goes home. He doesn't know that there's this plot going on. Right. He knows about the big decree that, that about all of God's people. So he's worried about that. But he's not even aware how bad it could get. Haman has the ability to do this, right? He's just shown that. He, if, if the king would sign off on this decree to kill all these people in the kingdom, how hard is it going to be for Mordecai to, or Haman to say, you know what, uh, also your guy Mordecai, I want to get rid of him. Like, not difficult. Haman can get this done. But God's aware. God's moving, right? And God does this for us all the time. He preserves us sometimes when we don't even know what he's preserving us from, right? We look back and we're like, oh, that one could have hit me. That was crazy. I didn't even know that was coming. And God's moving us and and protecting us, right? We can expect that God's going to do that. We don't need to constantly be concerned about what the future would hold. So when you get to chapter six, and it's going to move a little bit more quickly. These chapters get shorter. Chapter six, verses one through five says, on that night, the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So the king can't sleep, right? He's had this whole party for whatever reason. Now he's just got insomnia. He can't fall asleep. So they bring in the boring book of all the stuff that happened, right? And and he just should read me this until I fall asleep, basically. And as far as I understand, historically, the reason they kept this book, remember, was because he makes these decisions when he's drunk. So they write all this stuff down so that later on when he sobers up, they can explain to him what it is that he said. And which is just kind of funny to me that this is how bad these kids were, so he says, "Oh, read me the book and we'll catch up on some of the stuff that happened, right?" And he reads them and he remembers, "Oh, yeah, that's right, Mordecai. These two of my eunuchs were plotting. They were going to do this thing, and Mordecai told me about it. and He saved my life. And hey, what do we um, what do we do for him? Like, what do we do? We make sure that he got taken care of." And they say, "No." didn't happen. We didn't do anything for him. He didn't say to do anything. And the king said, oh, well, we got to do something about that. Who's, who's around? Who can I talk to who can tell me what would be a good thing to do? And they're like, oh, Haman just came in. So he goes and grabs Haman. Now, this moment right here is the moment where it's all about to fall out from under Haman's feet. He has no idea, right? But you get to kind of see it in the story. You're like, oh, dude, he's about to really mess up, right? But he's got no clue. He's coming in. He's like, all right, I'm, 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 I can't even wait for the Jews to all get killed. I want Mordecai to go this way in this terrible way that I've cooked up. We've got to get this done tonight. So he goes into the king, and, and he's like, oh, the king's awake? Great. I'm going to go and ask him about this thing. Now, again, all this stuff is hilarious. It's so funny. All oh, it just happened to happen— the king just happened to be awake. Haman just happened to be in the court. They just happened to be reading from this section of the Chronicles about this thing that just happened to happen. And, and it just happened that they didn't you know, take care of Mordecai before. So none of this just happened. The Lord is orchestrating this all completely, right? And I wonder if before this, Mordecai had been tempted to get bitter, right? Right. I saved this guy's life and he's this terrible person. I went and stuck my neck out. Didn't have to do it. Could have just let him die, right? But I stuck my neck out and saved him and what do I get? Nothing. What does Haman get? Whatever he wants, right? I'm sure he got like bitter and upset about that. But we're learning that God is this much in control, right? When things look most out of control, when the situation looks most chaotic to us, that's sometimes when God is most completely able to just bring it to the resolution that he wants. And Again, I'm sure that he was upset, but we know from scripture that we don't have to feel that way. Malachi 3:10 through 12 says, "Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house." Right? And this is kind of God speaking to his people, right? Who are saying, oh, I'm not going to do the things God asked. I'm not going to bring the tithe. I'm not going to do the sacrifice. I'm not going to do all this because I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So I need, I need to be careful. And God says, check it out and see if I don't do the thing I told Joe I was going to do. You do the thing I asked you to do and see if I can't take care of you, right? And that's how God had been with his people the whole time. He said, look, I want you to give the land a break. So I'm going to tell you every every this many years, you don't sow this year. And even in the law, God said, see if I can't make there be enough food for you to eat for those three years, right? The year you didn't get the food, the year you didn't sow, and then the year when the crops finally grow again. See if I can't take care of you. God almost wants us to kind of check that out and push it a little bit, right? To have the faith that he's going to do the things that He said to do. Now, we don't test God in the sense of like uh, an arrogant heart to go test God, right? Like, oh, I don't think God—no, it's not like that. It's a faithful heart where we say, Lord, you said that if I relied on you in my job and I didn't cheat and cut corners, you said you were going to take care of me. All right, Lord, I did that, <laughs> and now it's looking kind of scary, Lord. And the Lord loves to show up when we, when we obey, right? When, we, when, we've, when we've done the things that his word tells us to do, that's exactly what he likes to do. And this is what God's doing here in this case, right? Mordecai did the right thing, even though he probably didn't want to do it. But he says, ah, oh, I'm supposed to care for the king. That's what I'm here to do. So, okay, I'm going to go ahead and take care of this assassination plot. Let's see. And then nothing happens. But now the Lord is the Lord didn't forget. So Haman comes in. He's got his own plan. And the king says, okay, Haman, come over here. i got, I got a question to ask you. Come in here. So verse six. It says, So Haman came in. The king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So, now, he's... Now, because it's something about involving his own honor, he gets sidetracked from his murderous plot to kill somebody on a stick, right? He says, okay, well, let's take a minute, let's fix this. The king delights to honor somebody, it's definitely me. So let's come up with the best possible thing that I can think of that's gonna honor me. What would I like? Well, I would love it if I get paraded in front of everybody, right? Because I really love to have everybody paying attention to me. I would also love if when that happens, I, I look like the king and I'm dressed and all that, like it was all these honors that you typically wouldn't give to anybody else. And so he's really just going for broke. He's saying, do all this stuff for me, and um, <laughs> it's okay to laugh because it's supposed to be funny, right? You're, you're, there's this contrast, right? God's using Mordecai and Esther to fight for the lives of their people. And Haman's over here just fighting for himself, right? He's just, all he can think about is what more stuff can I get to my side of the table for me to enjoy? And uh, the, the, his hubris, right, that he has, which is just like, I'm I am on a winning streak. I'm going to keep going is, is kind of matched by his terrible downfall. And it's it's so important for us to see that God is the one who's able to lift us up and protect us and give us what he need. We don't want to be found in this place, right? It's so easy to get there. Of being like Haman, where you're the one, right? Clawing everything you can get to try and make sure. Like, I need to get mine. I need to protect myself. I need to care for myself. It's really easy to have that heart because it comes from fear, it comes from this place like, I don't know what's going to happen, so I need to make sure that I've got a little something to take care of me, right? I don't know. They, they never do what they're supposed to do, so I need I need to do this. Or, you know, I well, the government, they say they're going to take care of me, but they don't, so I, I'm going to make sure that, you know, we write it up this way. Or, well, you know, that friend of mine, they, they always say they're going to come through, but I'm going to have a backup plan because they, they, they don't do that, right? Whatever it is, it's so tempting for us to be so focused on just hanging on to it ourselves. But... That's not how the Lord wants us to act. Luke fourteen seven through 11 this is Jesus. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a pretty practical parable Jesus tells, right? He's like, listen, guys, like you're thinking that you're going to get something by fighting to get the highest seat. What's going to happen is you're about to get embarrassed. And, I, and Jesus is just saying it's, it's a very practical thing. He's like, I don't want to see that happen to you. Think a little bit and be wise and realize that that pride that you're showing, where you think you're going to get something, that pride's actually going to be your undoing. What if instead you were humble, right? Now, don't be humble. There's this false humility we can have sometimes we're like, oh, no, no, not me. I'm not great at anything. That's not what the Lord wants you to do. Just be really humble, right, where you're not thinking about yourself. That's what humility is. You're thinking about other people. You show up at the party instead of thinking about, okay, where do I need to sit to make sure that everybody kind of sees me and I'm close to the, those people, but I'm also, you know, just show up and think about other people. And then check out what the Lord does. See if the Lord isn't going to take care of you when instead of thinking about yourself, you're thinking about how the Lord wants to use you to bless others. And that's exactly what Haman uh, doesn't do. <laughs> he doesn't do any of that. And it's really about to uh, be a real problem for him. So chapter 6, starting in verse 10. He's got this huge plan. Uh, and here's, here's the kicker. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, if you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So, God chooses to honor Mordecai and humiliate Haman. It's a complete reversal, right? Up to this time, everything's been going his way, and this is the last time anything will go his way. Every, immediately, everything shifts, and now it's just this one big frantic headlong rush until really bad stuff happens, right, he just, he, he is out of control of the situation, and he never gets the momentum or the, the initiative or the advantage back again from this point, and You know, there's a part of us, and we have to be careful, right? Obviously, we don't ever want to, the Bible says, we don't want to desire the, God God doesn't desire the death of the wicked, the Bible says, right? So we shouldn't have that heart of like, oh, somebody's going to get him. That's, that's bad. The Lord's going to fix that in our heart, right? He's not going to allow us to have that kind of heart. But there is this part of of how God has made us, right? Where we look at people who act this way, and we know that it's just that they get that comeuppance, right? We know that that's right, that the Lord is going to take care of that, you know? Maybe you have a favorite kind of like internet video. Do have, everybody has this, don't pretend you don't, right? You have one kind of internet video that's just like, if you need to laugh or it's something that's interesting to you, you go to that thing, right? Some people like, I don't know, the, the cool videos of somebody building something and it's so satisfying and some people like the videos of somebody doing something dumb on a jet ski and it's funny or whatever, right? Now I like, the videos that I like It's very specific. I like a specific uh, type of edited video that you get sometimes where it's a video of two different moments in the life of like a boxer or a mixed martial arts fighter and they always edit them together it's really satisfying the first moment is right before the fight right maybe it's in the ring where they're tapping gloves maybe it's at the pre-fight interview or the way in and one guy is being really professional just being himself doing his thing the other guy is being a terrible person he's talking loud he's cursing he's doing all this he's riling people up he's just acting out being the fool and he's doing all this, talking a big game, saying, I'm just going to absolutely take you apart. The other guy's just standing there being real quiet, just being himself, doing nothing, right? And then they always, they edit these little, nice little videos. It's about 30 seconds long. They cut to the moment in the ring where that guy who's talking a huge game gets absolutely lit up, just ragdolls onto the canvas. And the other guy stands there and goes back to his corner and takes care of his business, right? That's, that's what I came to do. <laughs> that's what I knew I was going to do. Now what but there's part of us that just loves that, right? We see that moment where it goes from yeah, you you were talking a big game, but that didn't really help you when it really came down to it, right? And there's a, there's a satisfaction that comes from that. I think the reason is that there's so many times in life that we don't always get to see that, right? You maybe it's something that's you've even suffered in your life where you 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 know somebody that's like, "Lord, I know this person's doing not just stuff that makes me upset or unhappy, but really awful things and I'm not getting to see the judgment or the, the 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 satisfaction that I want you know you can think of this you know maybe you spend a little bit too much time thinking about the scenarios of how you want it to come around right but you don't see those in in life always But we have to remember that the Lord is taking care of us in those moments Luke twelve thirty through 32 says for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? So we're always thinking, Lord, like in our mind, in the worldly kingdom, we're looking at what's going on and we're saying, well, this is not happening. I'm not getting the thing that you promised me to have. I'm not getting what I want or what I think I need. And they're getting everything, right? You read through Psalms and David's like, Lord, why do the bad people get all the good stuff? And the good people just get bad stuff, and he gets frustrated, right? Or Job sometimes would complain, like, come on, like, I've done everything right, and I get nothing. I get worse than nothing. And look at all these people that I think are wicked, and they're, they're getting all these things. And it's easy for us to have that, that heart attitude, right? And Because it's discouraging to see that stuff. But what, is, what does God's Word say? It says that we're God's children, And what do you do for your kids? Aren't there times where your kids, right, hopefully, they don't have to constantly be concerned about all the crazy stuff that's going on in their world. They just get to go through their life and enjoy things, and you're there kind of, hopefully, creating an environment where they can enjoy themselves. Now we're gonna take care of this, and I'm gonna watch out for that. I'm gonna fix this so you don't have to worry about it. I'm gonna pay the rent so that you don't have to worry about that, right? And you've built this little place of peace for them where they can just enjoy themselves is the goal, right? Until they get older and you give them some more responsibility. But that, isn't that what God does to us? God loves to walk next to us, right, as we're kind of stumbling around on this battlefield. And there's all this stuff going on. Some of it, we're too silly to even know what's going on. And some of it, it's scary to us, and it's right in front of us. And God loves to be walking right alongside of us. And he's showing us where to go. He's showing us, okay, you do this. Don't go over there. That's scary. You're going to go that fight that guy. Okay, now watch out for this. And he's doing all this stuff for us, right, and protecting us and caring for us. Especially when we don't know that's what's happening. Sometimes when we think that we're doing the best, I'm out here and I'm doing it all. And Lord's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And he's kind of doing things and caring for us. And how many times have you looked around and realized this place that I'm in right now, I couldn't have planned it so wonderfully to get here. If I got to sit down with a magical piece of paper that God gave me where I could draw up whatever I wanted and God would make it happen, I couldn't have drawn this up because I would have had no idea how to work this out. Right? Like there's no way that I could have figured out, well, what I want is this and this and this. And yet God gave me something that he wanted me to have that was better than what I could have asked for, right? Or maybe it's not even something that's just, everything's not always great. Maybe there's something that happened that was so horrible that you didn't think you were going to make it through, but now you're on the other side of it and you realize, well, I had no idea that that could have been redeemed like that. Did it, did it, does it keep it from hurting or does it keep it from being awful? No, but I certainly didn't. I couldn't have even asked the Lord that this could have come out of that because I didn't think that was possible. I didn't even know to ask for that. And the Lord loves to do those things for us. The, the, this kind of trap is closing around Haman where all of his imaginations are coming to nothing, right? But meanwhile, look what's happening for Mordecai and Esther. From this point, things are going to start like opening up that they had no idea the Lord could have done, I don't think. I'm sure they were just hoping, look, we just want to make it to tomorrow. (laughs) I hope that this doesn't happen today, right? And the Lord is going to start doing things that they didn't even know to ask the king for that the Lord is going to do for them. And that's how the Lord loves to bless us. Now, we can choose in the middle of all that chaos, right, where, where this is not happening. I'm not seeing the resolution. I'm not seeing the good thing that I was hoping for. We can choose to spend that time worrying or or concerned or trying to to hold it all together ourselves or even just to get our minds around it and say, like, okay, if I can, if I can figure out what's going on, maybe I can keep it all together. We can choose to do that. But instead, I think it's better to just have that total focus on hearing the spirit's voice and responding, right? Because you get this sense of peace in the middle of all that chaos. That's really something kind of cool and special. does it make it fun and okay and take everything away? No, it doesn't. But those moments when you know that all this stuff is happening that you can't control, and yet you're like, well, but I'm here with the Lord, so we're just going to do this today. This thing I can do, that's what we're going to do. There's a piece that happens in that moment that you don't always get other times when everything's going great. And there's something unique about the relationship you get to have with the Lord at that time. And, you know, we can try and grab everything and wrestle it around in place just how we think it should have. But sometimes when we do that, it it kind of explodes in our face. And that's not a feeling that we like, right, of realizing, hey, I I did everything I wanted and it was bad. And I didn't even know that it was going to get bad. You know, if you've ever had one of those moments, maybe you've had a serious moment like that where, you know, Even just the way that god has made the human body to respond when something's dangerous or intense you get this massive rush right of adrenaline where all of a sudden everything slows down and you're just at this moment of peace where you're realizing okay this is what's happening and this is what i'm going to do and it's like everything slows down in your head and that's how god has created our body to respond right when something scary happens like he gives us that peace but he does that for you spiritually When you're in that moment, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, and I have control over none of this. And the Lord says, you're right. I want you to do this next. you're Okay, I did that. Now what? Now I want you to do this. And you just have this huge piece of, I'm doing this next thing that the Lord's told me to do, even though I don't know how that's going to work out, but I know I'm supposed to do this next thing. And it teaches you so much in those moments. You don't want to miss out on that by waiting to experience the Lord's peace until you feel okay or you feel like everything's in control. You know, the secret is that, We're never really in control of any of that, right? (laughs) We think we are in the moments where it's a normal week and it's routine. That's what we should call it. It's more routine. That doesn't mean we're in control of the routine. But it's just those moments that we feel like it. But when things start to fly apart, it's when we really realize, oh, this is where it's at. It's really that the Lord is doing all this for me, and I'm just being obedient to him and enjoying his peace when I'm being obedient. So, Haman, and I love Man, his his, uh, wife and his friends aren't really great friends, right? Because the one moment they're bigging him up and saying, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. You're going to take this guy, like make a big gallows and put him on it. And then the next moment they're like, oh, wait, he's a Jew? Which, by the way, they knew. (laughs) He knew he was a Jew. He said, Mordecai the Jew. And they're like, oh, uh, he's a Jew and you're losing? Oh, you're going to lose for sure. And it's like, you just told me to go out and go after this guy. and like, yeah, but now you're losing, so you're in trouble, right? Because he's got like this God and stuff. It's like, you, maybe you should have told him that before when he was trying to set up this whole plan to take him out. Not very good uh, counselors or friends, right? But they tell him, listen, you're in trouble. Uh, you know, you're not going to overcome him. You're surely going to fall. And then verse 14, it says, While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And I love, Esther is so kind of like vivid and like cinematic. It's like you get this picture of he's like, yeah, okay, we're going to fix this. And they're like, dude, you got to go. Like you've got like this party to go to. And it's like he can't, now he's out of control. He can't control any of these pieces anymore. He's just going where people tell him to go. And he's going from one disaster to another. Um, So this next thing that's going to happen, again, not great for him. Chapter 7 from verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So she denounces Haman's plot. And the book of Esther and also Queen Esther, they seem to have this kind of flair for the dramatic, right? She waits for this perfect moment to reveal this. And even the way she does it, she kind of opens it up and you can almost see everybody's faces, right? The king's like, what? And and Haman's freaked out, right? And she's kind of pointing at him or I don't know how it went down. But she's using her charm. She, She quotes... I love it. She quotes the text of that decree right back to the king, right? Almost as to jog his memory. He's like, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, you said something about destroy, kill, and annihilate. Yeah, that was about like my people. And she's kind of reminding him, this is what you said. This is happening to us. It's happening to me. And he doesn't know that she's included in that. And so she's revealing all these cards and begging for her own life. She kind of flatters him a little bit. She reminds him of the loss to his kingdom, right? She says, listen, I wouldn't have said anything if it was just that we were going to get turned into slaves. But since we're all going to die, I thought it would be good to tell you because you would lose a lot of subjects, a lot of revenue. It would be bad for you. So I'm telling you now, right? She's kind of just putting it in terms that I guess makes matter to him in his world. So she's denouncing Haman's plot. It says that the king is outraged and we know that he's a dangerous man when he gets angry right when he we we, and i want it's really important the king doesn't come out of this like the king's not a hero in this he's a horrible wicked guy who does horrible wicked stuff and the lord is just turning his heart wherever the lord wants to put it but he's a bad dude and when he gets upset when he gets drunk when he gets angry when he feels like his pride is hurt, he does bad stuff, right? He banished a queen. He's decided in a, in a, in a moment of just, ah, sure, whatever, to, to destroy a whole group of people that he doesn't even know the details of just because Haman said so. He's not a great guy. And so as soon as, I'm sure, as Haman sees that he's angry, Haman knows that he's in trouble because Haman's seen this go down before. He gets drunk, he gets angry, and somebody gets in his way and it's not good for that guy. And Haman knows that now that's going to be him. And I think it's not just the... uh. It's not just the anger at realizing the plot, but I think some of it is almost his pride, too. It's like, this happened because it was my advisor that duped me, got in close with me, and used his relationship to me to get this thing, and almost was going to kill my queen. Um, And so it's like his pride is hurt that he got taken advantage of this way. And now Haman is totally terrified, right? This is the moment that, what's amazing about this is the king realizes Esther is a Jew, but this is the moment Haman realizes Esther is a Jew. And, and so Haman's all of a sudden like, well, I didn't, that's not what I meant to do, right? Like, I, I was going to take care of these people. And Mordecai, I didn't know that that had anything to do with the queen. And now he realizes that he has really made a bunch of mistakes. He hadn't kind of bargained for this. And this is why Esther is, is you know, it's not just her wisdom, it's supernatural wisdom the Lord gave her to expose the plot this way, right? you got to remember, we're in the Persian court, and this kind of stuff goes down all the time. And she knows that Haman is a devious guy, that he's a liar, that he's a murderous guy, that he's going to do whatever it takes. So she's got a tiger by the tail now. She knows she's going to reveal this, but the way that she does it, what's going to happen? She's going to go confront Haman and say, hey, I know what you did. Well, he's going to get her killed, right? He, he's, she has to do it in such a way that every, all the cards have to go on the table at once so she can be in the room with the king and Haman so that Haman can't do anything, that now he's in the room, and this is all revealed, right? She's, she's protecting herself by revealing it in a way that both of them are there so that she's not going to get hurt by the blowback of what happened. She's kind of trying to set this up so that she can be protected, right? Because she knows it's like, you, yeah, you have this piece of information on Haman, but that could go right back at you if you're not careful. So she's the Lord is kind of setting her up for this protection that she needs to be able to reveal this because she's in a dangerous spot still, Um And even with Haman's downfall, it's not going to fix all the problems we're going to read. So starting in verse 7, the king is furious. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he'd prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So Haman knows that this is his last play, right? and he's desperate. Remember, when he's desperate desperate people are dangerous right you don't know what he's going to do and the king knows that and you you get i don't want to read between the lines too much but you get the sense that the king's like i need to take a walk i've been drinking (laughs) i'm compromised i'm angry i need to take a walk for a minute clear my head and come back and we're to get this fixed And even in that moment, it probably wasn't super smart for him to do that. He comes back and Haman's falling on the couch, it says, and it doesn't make it clear that he was trying to attack Esther. I think it's just another one of his blunders. He's just trying to like, please, please don't kill me. And the king comes in, sees it, interprets it as whatever, either that he's attacking the queen or trying to take advantage of her, whatever. And he just gets angry again and says, okay, come on, like this is the last straw. Get rid of this guy. Um, and, And that's kind of the final straw. All of this scheming, all this plotting, now he's destroyed himself and it's kind of all been through his own plans that has been his own comeuppance. Psalm 7, or uh, Psalm chapter 7, starting in verse 12, says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. And that's exactly what happens, right? Down to the exact way that he dies, right? He's they cover his head, which is kind of like just like in the movies, right? They just kind of get him ready for execution, basically. They're like, well, that's it. Right? And everybody knows. It doesn't say that the king even gives the order. Everybody's like, hey, you better, um, this is, you know, that's what's gonna happen to him. And I love these, you know, we've got to remember, this is a savage dangerous, petty environment. And one of these eunuchs, right, who've been in trouble for the king before. Remember, he had these eunuchs that were close to him, and Harbona is one of them. He's one of these guys, I believe in the beginning, who's one of the closest eunuchs to him. They're these court advisors, these kept guys that just hang out in the court and intrigue and do all this stuff. A couple of these guys tried to kill the king, but this is one of the guys who, he's still made it. He's still loyal to the king, and he sees what's going down, and he sees this opportunity for this kind of sick joke, basically. And he kind of, I love how he just, it's supposed to be humorous, the way he just kind of ventures this stuff. He says, hey, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Haman made this big, huge gallows, and he was going to hang Mordecai on it. I'm just going to leave that there. And then he just kind of leaves it, and the king says, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Hang him on it, right? The, the eunuchs just kind of sliding this information across the table, and he knows what the king's going to do with it. Um, there's not heroes in this story except for God and his people. This was an environment with constant plotting and violence, and God has preserved them so far through dozens of these little tiny miracles, some of which they might not even be aware of yet, right? Maybe when they looked back, they kind of exchanged stories and said, oh, I didn't know that that's what happened then. That I wasn't even aware that was going to happen. And they're seeing what the Lord has done. But so far, they're just kind of going from moment to moment while this chaos happens around them and trusting that the Lord is going to be getting them through it. So, that's kind of the thing that we can learn from this, right? Matthew 10:28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And, you know, we're always so tempted to look at the circumstances in our life and think that they're somehow different right? Well, this time, you don't understand. This time, it's a a directly elected bad president. That makes it different. Oh, come on. (laughs) It doesn't, right? It isn't different. When Jesus was saying, hey, don't be afraid of people who can kill the body, he was talking to people who had people in their life who could and would kill their body. You were talking to people who were under direct Roman occupation, and they hated it. It made them angry and they saw it every day. They couldn't go to the temple without seeing the Antonia Fortress up there looking at them all the time and reminding them who was boss, right? And Jesus said, don't be afraid of those guys. Be afraid of God. Those guys can't do anything that can really change your eternal destiny, but you need to be worried. You you reverence God. You fear God. And God's going to take care of all this stuff. And if he could say that at the place where they were, then surely we can say that in our moment, right? Of all the things that worry us, right? Our, whatever is going on in our life. I don't know. You know, the, we all, I'm sure, sometime in your life, right? You've got this one thing in the back of your mind, no matter what's going on, it's like a bad tooth, right? Everything's fine, but I just can't touch that situation right now because it's not good. And whatever that situation is, that's something that God is, has said, hey, you don't have to be afraid of that. That's, I think, when we start getting ourselves into trouble. when when we're it's not just that the situation's bad or we don't know what we're going to do but we let the fear kind of get in there and rattle around until we start making these actions and these decisions out of the flesh because we just want to get rid of the fear if i just do this then it's going to fix it if i just you know i'm going to go tell them what's up and they're going to stop doing that i'm going to go i'm going to take this action that's what everybody else does that's how they handle it and that it'll work for me We're we're letting that fear for the situation or for other people rule us It's tempting for us to start thinking about, well, if this happens, and then this happens, and this happens, and this is what could happen, right? And you start letting that fear drive you. And we want to get things back under our control. But Jesus says, no, if you fear the Lord and you realize that, look, the Lord is the one, right, who's on the throne, and that means that there's not extra space for me to be on the throne, too. So if the Lord is on the throne and he's the one who's in control, then I don't get to be in control. I don't have to be in control. It's actually really great right? I tell my kids all the time, like, I love you guys, but I don't need a manager. Like, I'm, I got it, right? I'll, I'll handle the drive. I know where we're going, right? I know what we're going to eat, what we're going to do. I got it. You just hang out. And that's what God says to us sometimes. Like, look, I don't need you to tell me how it's got to go. I got it. You just be doing your thing. You be enjoying my presence. You be doing the things I've, I've given you lots to do. You go do those things, and you let me worry about that other stuff, right? Now, Because God sees things that we don't, and he's caring for us in ways that we don't even know about, then we can trust him even when some of these things that we're praying for, that work isn't finished, right? So yeah, Haman's gone, but there's still a decree that says that all the Jews are going to get killed, and it's the law of the Persians, so you can't just say, oh, never mind, we'll undo that one. That's not how their law works. That's still going on. So there's still a lot of problems that are are still going on, and there's still... Almost, you know, chapters of the book that are going to resolve the rest of that. So at this moment, I don't, think, I don't think, you know, Mordecai and Esther said, Oh, well, Haman's gone. Great. No worries. There was still all kinds of stuff going on. But this was maybe just one moment where they said, Okay, well, I don't have to worry about that anymore. That was the scariest thing I was thinking about. I was like, what is that guy going to do? He's totally un- off the chain. I can't control him. He's the one in charge and he can do whatever he wants. And now the Lord has just completely miraculously removed that problem in a pretty intense public way. Right? everybody would, it's a big old stick, and everybody would have seen him die. And that would have been a way that they would have said, okay, well, if the Lord can do that, if the Lord can take care of that enemy that I didn't know what I was going to do about, I guess I can trust the Lord to handle this problem, right? And that's how we have to move from these things in our life. There's so many temptations for us to say, yeah, 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 that happened before, but this time is different. This time it's a big one. Or this time, it, that, that, that was that situation or that kind of thing, but this is a different thing. But it's just, God's the same right? He's not confused. He knows what's going on. He knows way more than you know. He knows the next thing that you're going to be worried about when this thing's way back in your memory, right? When you've forgotten about it, he knows what's coming up next. So he's going to take care of that stuff for us. At this point, I'm sure Mordecai and Esther are learning that God had it handled, and we we can trust the Lord the same way, right? I even just think about, just as we're closing, I just think about even being in here, right? like, you know, this is something that we prayed about, and I'm not going to lie to you, there's some worry that goes along with a construction project, right? And We all were thinking, like, well, is it is it going to get done? And when is it going to get done? Will it ever get done, right? And And then we, but hey, while this was happening, praise the Lord, I'm finally learning just a little bit. I was praying about it, and I was concerned, and I remember the Lord was reminding me, look, you were worried about the next door space, too, when that was a little tiny project compared to this one. And at that time, I was like, I don't know how this is going to get done. You know, how are we going to pay for this? And the Lord took care of that. And before that, we were worried about, well, how are we ever going to get out of the hotel? Right. And the Lord took care of that. And at every stage you can see, look, the Lord has the things that we need and he's going to give them to us at the exact time that we need them. Not before. Right? Sometimes not at all before, <laughs> right at the moment when we really need them. But the Lord's going to do that for us. He's going to take care of us. And as you start to have those experiences, do your best, honestly, like, do your best to keep those in your mind so you can bring them back out again when the enemy starts attacking with worry and, and fear and concern. Because that's the moment that you got to say, look, look, look. I would be worried about this. That looks really scary. But have you noticed all these cool things that the Lord's been doing for me? Yeah, maybe they don't look like this thing, but there's, there's these things. Look at this stuff that God's done. And that That heart of gratitude towards the Lord, of remembering the things that the Lord has done, is what helps you when there is something the Lord hasn't done for you yet that you can be worried or even upset about. And it's it's that focus that we want to have of just looking back and saying, okay, but the Lord did this. I bet He's going to be able to do that too.